I believe that non-pharmacological care could be and should be the integral part of a whole person management for dementia. I'm Dr. Nathaniel Chin, and you're listening to Dementia Matters, a podcast about Alzheimer's disease. Dementia Matters is a production of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. Our goal is to educate listeners on the latest news in Alzheimer's disease research and caregiver strategies. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to Dementia Matters Special Alzheimer's Association International Conference Series, where we're previewing the plenary talks to learn more about the conferences, speakers, and their work. I'm joined today by Dr. Linda Lam, Professor of Psychiatry at the Chinese University of Hong Kong and the founding president of the Chinese Dementia Research Association. Her research focuses on the early detection and intervention for mild cognitive impairment and dementia, as well as biomarker evaluations and determinants of healthy aging. Her AAIC plenary talk focusing on non-pharmacological care, behavioral change, and MCI will take place on Thursday, August 4th. Dr. Lam, welcome to Dementia Matters. Hi, Dr. Chin. It's my honor to join you at Dementia Matters today. We're very excited to talk to you today. And so to begin, I'd like to know what got you interested in dementia research and the specific area of early detection and intervention? Well, I have always been interested in elderly medical care since my early career days. When I started psychiatric training years ago, um, dementia was not a popular diagnosis in the sense that there's nothing we can do. And for example, we were taught at that time that Alzheimer's disease was diagnosed by excluding known brain diseases. It's diagnosis by exclusion, which is unthinkable nowadays. So um, especially for patients with uh, dementia and behavioral problems, they were a big headache to most clinicians, regardless of what specialty they were in. Being a psychiatrist myself, by training at that time, I naturally got interested into how to tackle these uh, mental and behavioral symptoms associated with dementia. They look so difficult to treat, but they are common problems. Even years back, uh, but nobody took any uh, interest in that. So uh, gradually, when I go more into the psychiatric training and see more patients with dementia, it's increasingly obvious that the person changed. I mean, the personality and the behavior changed a long time before obvious cognitive impairment. The behavior change, I asked myself, should they assist in early diagnosis and intervention? And I think so too. So that got me interested in the assessment of behavioral symptoms and uh, how it assesses in early diagnosis. But it remains a big question to most neurologists and psychiatrists that if we could intervene the behavior earlier, would it make a difference in the disease prognosis for dementia as a whole? That's an astute clinical observation that you had years ago in your, in your training and in your career. And I say that because only now am I seeing more and more discussion of, of behavioral symptoms as part of the possibly the earliest symptoms of a dementia process, the changes in the brain. And we even use terms now of mild behavioral impairment. And I know that's uh, more and more common in research, but you were seeing this in patients and, and, and starting to see this trend. That's in incredible. Do any symptoms jump out at you when you think about the earliest of emotional or behavioral change? 
anxiety and apathy. We learn a lot about depression and how depression in midlife as a risk factor for dementia. But more and more, we got to see patients who were labeled as worried well. Their cognitive function, especially most at the highly educated one, remains to be top scorer, but then they are very anxious. And a few years later, you find that they got more cognitively impaired. And of course, apathy, especially in those with myovascular neurocognitive disorder, this could be quite disturbing. The person knows that they lose interest, but they just do not know why they lose interest in the usual activity. And that, that was quite distressing, and especially in the context that you still could be very functional. Well, one of the themes of your plenary talk is non-pharmacological care. And so within this category of therapy, non-medication care, what do you find to be the most compelling as far as interventions go? Indeed, I think non-pharmacological care would be the main theme of my talk. I believe that non-pharmacological care could be and should be the integral part of a whole person management for dementia. This is not because we still do not have a creative drugs that would revert the cognitive function and neurodegeneration, but also that whole person live the life not only for the cognition. There's feeling stay, uh, whether a person is joyful, and how they function in the context of the community. So we need to think about strategies that both improve cognition or even if does not improve cognition a lot, it would improve a person's life from different perspective. So that's why we think non-pharmacological care should be an integral part of dementia care. From a clinical perspective, from the clinician's point of view, I think this type of care could range from structured lifestyle interventions such as leisure activity interventions and doing more physical exercise or changing your diet and sleep to the more laboratory-based paradigm that specifically enhances cognition. So it's a wide range of things. As there are many modalities, I and more into the lifestyle interventions such as physical activity as well as the non-physical cognitive function. Uh, it is hard to say which one is best, but I think the primary consideration should be whether a person loves to do it or not. If he or she enjoys the activity or training so much so that he would carry it on months after months, years and after years, this is the only reason that it would benefit a person. Uh, even if a small cognitive gain or a person feel happy that they continue that for a long time, that should be considered as a useful intervention. I would like to give an example. I have an elderly lady. She is now with severe Alzheimer's disease. Uh, years before that, uh, many years ago, her son told me that she got interested in jigsaw puzzle. And initially, she could do the 500 jigsaw puzzle when she's suffering from mild Alzheimer's disease. Now she's suffering from severe Alzheimer's disease. Son told me that she still plays jigsaw puzzle every day, except that she does not fit the pieces well. But she's happy doing it almost two hours in the morning. So I think that's already a good cognitive intervention for her. Enjoyment should be the prime driver. <laughs> I appreciate. I really appreciate that, and that's something I think people forget about because you don't want this to be a chore or something that you have to cross off your list. You want to enjoy this activity, which inherently then benefits your brain. And also the enjoyment benefits you, your overall well-being. 
Yeah. Uh, I wonder in the list of modalities that, that you talked about, you know, where does dance therapy or language, learning another language fit? And the reason I mention these is because you've done some research in those two categories. And I think that's fascinating. If you could share with us what you found or what you think of those two things. Dance is a movement-based physical exercise from my perspective. So taking the physical part to, of dancing is balanced training and you have to move quickly so that you have to attain a sense of balance. And it's muscle training because most of the movements require muscle strength and it strengthens the joints and the muscles and as well as uh, it's quite aerobic. If you do the strenuous dancing, it's a kind of aerobic activities. More importantly, uh, as from the cognitive aspect, you have to coordinate the body movements with the music. So it's kind of cognitive training, and it's especially for the attention training. But uh, one thing I think very interesting in the dance uh, therapy is that a person, especially when they dance with partners, you have to anticipate and think what the other partners are doing. It's kind of the empathy training. You have to think from the other's perspective, otherwise we get into chaos. So this is also a frontal loop function training. Of course, those who persist in dance therapy are those who love dancing. You can't hate dancing and do it for a long time. So uh, this is a joyful activity. It's a cognitive stimulation. It's a physical exercise. So it's a multimodality uh, lifestyle interventions that we could think of. And for the language, learning for lang- uh, a foreign language is interesting. I once heard about a presentation about a research on Indian elders because they have uh, many different kinds of language in India. And uh, those who speak three or four di- different Indian language have years gained in terms of delaying onset of dementia. The, in our place in Hong Kong, the elders... Uh, most of them do not have chance to learn English when they are young, but they treasure this chance very much when we try to embark on English learning as kind of cognitive training for dementia prevention. So it's very user-friendly. They, they think that they can take this chance to learn English, which they aspire for decades of their life. I think the motivation and the positive experience that one could gain through this kind of cognitive stimulating activity definitely play a role in terms of its efficacy. Another aspect of your research is early detection of cognitive impairment. And so what do you see are are key barriers to early detection and what are some potential solutions that are being investigated? I think it's increasingly difficult to detect early cognitive impairment, especially in the community. It's not because the cognitive screening tools are failing, but because the education level of the community dwelling elders have been increasing significantly. With high education attainment, conventional screening tools may fail to detect early uh, and subtle cognitive changes. So I guess this would be one of the important barriers to early detection, especially in the next decades to come when most young olds actually have high educations. Our brains develop good compensatory strategies to cover up some mild cognitive changes uh, in the face of early neurodegeneration. What are the potential solutions that we can think about is perhaps to have more serial assessment of the healthy older adults. 
and they can join in as a healthy older adults to have serial changes. They may start off with 100% score, but the next year with a 5% drop is still top scorer, but the next year is a 10% drop. So uh, this annual change in the top performance would indeed ring a bell for further investigation. Can you share for us some of the key themes in your plenary presentation? One point I want to share is to bring out the discussion about the outcome measures for treatment for mild cognitive impairment or even earlier, the subjective cognitive decline. And we have very standard and reliable measures for uh, dementia, interventions with dementia, and uh, like the cognitive function tests, behavioral tests. But how well these clinical outcomes or cognitive outcomes would apply for those with uh, mild cognitive impairment or even those with subjective cognitive impairment remain questions that which is not easy to answer. Uh, because these uh, cognitive changes are still subtle in the early phase, it's very hard to detect any cognitive change that is uh, functionally important for a person in interventions with mild cognitive impairment. So should we think about uh, the other aspects such as um, a behavioral improvement after some inter- non-pharmacological intervention or even uh, mental health measures. I mean the positive mental health measures after intervention because uh, after all, if we want a person to have persistent, sustained lifestyle intervention for cognition and functioning, the mental health aspects should be considered. One has to like the intervention, like in the sense that so much so that they would continue this kind of intervention for months and years to come. So I would like to talk about um, mental health outcomes as part of the measurement outcomes for early intervention. The other aspect I would like to share is, uh, which I'm very excited as well, because I'm soliciting the help for clinical dementia researchers all over Asia. These are my friends' networks. And invite them to share with me uh, one center, one slide about their non-drug interventions for mild cognitive impairment. And now I got feedbacks from Japan, Korea, Taiwan, mainland China, and India, and Indonesia. So I think this is a great opportunity that I could summarize. I would not say that I could digest, but I could summarize their work, which is indeed interesting and very and culturally friendly. And I hope the rest of the world would like this Asia tour for non-pharmacological intervention. Oh, that's very exciting. We'll have to tune in to, to hear that part of your presentation. I guess to end, you know, what presentations or topics are you excited to listen to in this year's 2022 AAIC? Uh, as mentioned before, I really like to learn more about apathy. And there is a plenary talk on apathy in dementia. So apathy is so common and is so subtle, but it's so distressing both to the functioning elders and their caregivers. Even for those with moderate to severe dementia, apathy indeed is something that caregivers feel very stressful, especially when you want to motivate your family members to do something that they are happy, but they just are not interested. So uh, I'm looking forward to the talks on apathy and what insights that we can get to derive some interventions that could tackle apathy. 
Well, with that, thank you, Dr. Linda Lamb, for being on Dementia Matters for the special series with the Alzheimer's Association International Conference. Uh, I'm looking forward to, to hearing your presentation as well as the, the scientific session that you're leading. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Dementia Matters. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts to be notified about upcoming episodes. You can also listen to our show by asking your smart speaker to play the Dementia Matters podcast. And please rate us on your favorite podcast app. It helps other people find our show and lets us know how we're doing. Dementia Matters is brought to you by the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. The Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center combines academic, clinical, and research expertise from the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and the Geriatric Research, Education, and Clinical Center of the William S. Middleton Memorial Veterans Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. It receives funding from private, university, state, and national sources, including a grant from the National Institutes of Health for Alzheimer's Disease Centers. This episode of Dementia Matters was produced by Rebecca Wazaleski and edited by Kaylin Rowerdink. Our musical jingle is Cases to Rest by Blue Dot Sessions. To learn more about the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center and Dementia Matters, check out our website at adrc.wisc.edu. That's adrc.wisc.edu. Follow us on Facebook at Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center and find us on Twitter at Wisconsin ADRC. If you have any questions or comments, email us at dementiamatters at medicine.wisc.edu. Thanks for listening.